Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We begin this morning with the President of the United States saying the following. Will some people be affected? Yes. Will some people be affected badly? Yes. But we have to get our country open and we have to get it open soon. Let's turn now to David Balin of City Private Bank, the Chief Investment Officer. David, help me out with this one as we reopen. Is there a reopening rotation in this market? If so, what does it look like? Well, in terms of what we're what we're expecting to see is, you know, a reopening that is, is very much focused on two big trends. One is to refill the supply lines and, and you know, of the um, uh, for all industrial products and capital expenditures. And a second one associated with the consumer. Um, we, we expect that that reopening is right. This quarter is all about refilling that pipeline. And then obviously the rebound will take place in the numbers in Q3. And as you've been talking about on the show today, we're going to continue to see these incredibly bad numbers. And what we're going to need to see on the opposite side of this is an enormous amount of reemployment. Of the 30-odd million people, let's say, in the United States who are unemployed, we would want to see half of those people or more reemployed as we enter Q3. And if that's the case, then you can, you really have, you're meeting the market expectations here. So to me, that's what we're going to be looking for because that is what's going to drive, yeah. uh, in, in my mind, the, the, the economic you know, power, the re- recovery – that will give people confidence that the numbers in the markets today are real. How far is the stock market looking out right now? The textbook tells me six months. We understand that's a guesstimate. But, David, how far do you think the stock market's guessing out? Yeah, I think that the stock market, uh, Tom, has to be guessing out now about a year. And here's why. First of all, you see that nobody is willing to make really good predictions about what's actually going to happen quarter to quarter for all good reasons. These numbers are unlike anything that we've ever seen, including in the great financial crisis. So what we need to see is a recovery, right, where we get through this trough and then we actually experience the type of earnings that, you know, for 2021 and we get some clarity on that. And we're expecting a 50, so a, a very sharp decline, you know, uh, about 40 percent decline in EPS for the S&P. Mm-hmm. And half of that would be captured back in 2021. So once we get into Q3 and we see the recovery, people will need to believe that what they see in Q3 will be right. 2021 possible. And that will be the key determinant as to whether or not this market can maintain the types of valuations that are being projected. Within the the elasticities on any given big company's uh, uh, income statement, what does furlough mean to you? I mean, John, I mean, you're up to speed on these headlines better than me. British Airways is furloughing. You know, General Motors, the CFO is going to be on with Bloomberg later. I'll bet you they'll furlough. What's furlough mean? Well, in terms of what we're looking at, furlough means obviously temporary unemployment, people who's, where the company's intention is to reemploy them. And furlough also means, at least in the U.S., that those furloughed employees will get benefits associated with mm-hmm. uh, either company loans that are forgiven uh, or because of unemployment benefits that are made available. Uh, and, and then when that furlough period is over, they're presumably reemployed and then will ultimately be paid by the company. 
David, this sort of goes to the idea of what the economy will look like on the other side, the idea of furloughing uh, employees rather than laying them off outright because people are expecting the economy to recover. I'm struck by the borrowings of some junk-rated companies. They are paying more than 10% yields to borrow money for four years. And I'm wondering whether the cure is worse than the ailment. In other words, how many of these companies that are piling on debt and keeping employees online are not going to survive after the pandemic because they've just simply become over-leveraged given economic growth? It's it's one of the major uh, issues that you know and, and unintended and unintended consequences of the Fed stepping into the market. What you're talking about is the fact that that companies that might not have been able to borrow are now able to go to the junk market, able to obtain, as you said, capital at very expensive rates to continue their operations, even though they were probably marginal prior to that recapitalization. So. The issue there is what is the strength of the recovery? And one of the reasons why we're very concerned about aspects of the high-yield bond market is precisely because there is really no trajectory for those companies, you know, given the slowness of what we expect this recovery will be over the next two years, to really give them any acceleration uh, in their businesses. So to your point, a lot of companies have seen the postponement of what ultimately will be you know, either the failure of the company, the merger of the company, or the restructuring of the company. Uh, and that's really one of the unintended consequences. We're, we're very carefully looking at credits at City Private Bank to make sure we do not put client capital into those companies, because even though the yields look very attractive, they are much more risky than they appear. So, David, can you square that idea, this sort of bearish feel with respect to the high-yield bond market, with your bullish call on small-cap stocks, which often track the high-yield bond market in terms of performance? That, that is a great question also, and I think you have to look at the balance sheets of those companies. So what we've done is we've divided the high-yield market itself, and we've taken out all of the energy securities and taken a look at the remainder of the high-yield mar- mar- bond market and the companies that are borrowing those. And then we've further divided those companies into those that have resilient business models, i.e., which have not been as impacted by th- this market conditions and specifically associated with healthcare, uh, consumer durables, and things like that, companies that supply parts and services to industries that are going to recover. An example would be airline services rather than airlines. And by identifying all of those sub-segments, you're able to build a portfolio of companies that are very highly likely to rebound and to thrive. And to your other point, to the extent that you identify companies that are either over-levered or where their business models themselves are not in essential categories, we are going to avoid them. But it's this level of discrimination. And by the way, the market has been fairly discriminating in this regard when when you take a look at small and mid-cap equity prices. This is the kind of work that you have to do in terms of portfolio construction now that just six months ago you really didn't need to do because things were relatively uh, sanguine. Well, David, thrive under what conditions? You know, let's get back to the main story. We're reopening here, and there's clearly a massive tail risk of a second wave. Now, for some people, that's not a tail risk. That's a base case. Isn't that likely to linger for the next several months? So it is a base case. And I think that there, this whole debate in the market as to whether or not there's a second wave, we are going to see a material increase in the number of coronavirus cases, whether that be in Europe or in the United States. And in the U.S., you're actually going to see potentially even more bad news in that regard because of the nature of the rolling way that they handled the lockdowns and are now handling um, the, the, the reopening of the economy. So the question is, do these increases in virus cases ultimately once again impact the healthcare system? You have to go back to the first premise. The reason why we took the step of lockdown was because we thought we would overwhelm healthcare systems and completely have people literally dying at their homes, dying in the streets, you know, things like that. Unwilling to do that as a society. 
We then stepped in to, to stop that. And now we're going to reopen. And the question is, how do we make sure that does not happen again? And there's only two ways for that to be true. One is that the amount of disease goes down. And that's this concept of a trough between the waves. And then the second is that we know that there'll be a second wave barring a treatment or vaccine. Um, and that, that the question is how big that wave is. And it right now in the United States look, looks like it could accelerate because of the fact that we didn't tamp down the disease sufficiently. David, great to get your thoughts on the show. Really That's appreciate it. David, thank you. David Bailin, send our best to the team, won't you? City Private Bank's Chief Investment Officer. This has been one of the pleasant surprises of this tragedy, a, a weekly conversation, even more than that, with the Lieutenant Governor of the Empire State. Kathy Hochul joins us right now. Kathy, I want to ask a dumb question. Government can affect policy that makes things easy. Why can't the state of New York say you can't walk on the streets of New York, New York State without a mask on and those plastic gloves on, those latex gloves on? Wouldn't that immediately build confidence? We build confidence by having the people who listen to us every single day as we give very transparent press conferences and tell it like this. We tell them the truth. We tell them that if they wear the mask, they cannot just save themselves, but also their families, and they have a responsibility. But we don't have the resources nor the desire to have a police state where we go through and have to try to convince Fair. 19 million people to adhere. We'd love to, but we're not going to. That's not who we are. It's not our character. But we want that same result, and we are appealing to people and their desire to protect themselves and their families and friends and neighbors. And thus far, I have to say, we are starting to see some cracks in this, but people have really uniformly throughout the state been adhering to this. And that's really actually quite astounding that they are the ones, the New Yorkers are the ones right. who really changed this trend. If they hadn't been doing the social distancing and now the mask, we'd be in a far worse place. So you'll see outliers, and we hope we can bring them back into the fold. But right now, I think we're doing very well. Lieutenant Governor, when we talk about a May 15th reopening in New York, we are talking about upstate. We are not talking about New York City. How much longer do you think it will take for the major metropolitan areas in the region to reopen? We have put in place a number of metrics that have really come from the CDC that we're using upstate, first of all, and that is to look at the hospitalization rate, the number of ICU beds being used, the rate of infection, how it's spreading, also, the ability to have more diagnostic testing available, as well as contact tracers. So the benefit for New York City is that we'll be able to trial run this upstate. I'm managing parts of upstate, western New York area, and looking at these metrics, do we hit them by May 15th? If so, we'll slowly open manufacturing, some retail where you could pick up on the curb, and construction. This is the same model that we would use downstate, but then we're going to take two weeks and test and see whether or not the numbers have gone upwards, downwards, stay the same. And so it's this data that's going to help us drive the reopening of New York City, which we have to get right. We cannot do it a day too early, but not a day longer than necessary. We don't want to have the economy held back any longer than is necessary. But also safety is going to continue to be our, our guide, guiding star. So I think it's good for New York City. I don't think there's a single person in New York City who thinks they're ready. They know that. They're still seeing the numbers. But upstate, we can do a, a trial run of this and then implement that in New York City in a few weeks. So we don't have a timeline for New York City just yet. Kathy, I'm going to ask a delicate question, and I asked it with the deepest amount of understanding and sympathy for the position you're in. When Governor Cuomo says the faster we reopen, the lower the economic cost, but the more lives are lost. You guys are in a really tough position now where you have to balance reopen the economy 
with loss of life. And when that's communicated from Governor Cuomo, it comes across really sincerely, very authentically, and I think it resonates with a lot of people listening to these news conferences. But behind closed doors, when you have to make that calculation, can you give us a deeper understanding of how you make those decisions? It's heart-wrenching. No one in public life ever expects they're going to have to make these types of decisions. We go into public life to make people's lives better, give them education, health care, opportunity for good jobs. You never think that you're going to have to be in the position to determine between life and death. But it's very clear to us. We will choose life over death. That is, that has been what has guided us. It's, it's not a gray area. It's black and white. And we also know that you can't have a livelihood without a life. So people talk about we have to bring back the economy. Yes, we do. We have to bring it back in a thoughtful way that will protect people's lives and also give employees and customers the assurance that when they come to your establishment, they will be safe. That's why we have to get this right. We could flip a switch and open it tomorrow, but there's not a single New Yorker, very few, who think that it's safe enough to go out there now and they're still seeing the numbers that we are. We will get to that point. And I'm going to tell you right now, we are already planning for a post-pandemic future that's even better. Not just reopening our economy, but reimagining areas like the workplace, how we can make it more flexible for people. Reimagining education and making sure it's more accessible through technology and all the experience that our teachers have had to go through teaching children at home and our colleges and how they've had to adapt. We have an opportunity here to make this even stronger than before. And that's what we're doing, but we're going to get it right. Lieutenant Governor, you said that there really isn't gray area. I am guessing that President Trump may agree. He was talking about how there are losses on either side. You're seeing mental illness rise. Uh, you're seeing uh, the, the the concern about substance abuse, domestic violence. Even uh, Governor Cuomo has talked about this. It's not necessarily uh, all, all things being equal. I'm just wondering how you weigh things on that side as the jobless rate soars to levels not seen in modern history. Again, this is unprecedented. We, you know, we're not trying to increase the jobs rate. We're trying to save people's lives. But we're very thoughtful in this. That's why we put in place different opportunities for people to get assistance. We have a hotline, an emotional health hotline, for not just first responders, who I'm sure are going to have lifelong impacts on their mental health because of what they've had to see and endure during this crisis, but people who've been isolated and people who are lonely, and those are dealing with the 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 havoc in their lives from having lost a job when they never dreamed they'd be having to spend hours on a phone trying to get an unemployment uh, application in. So we know there's a, a severe human toll, and we have assistance for yeah. them. We have over 90,000 people answering phone calls to help them. But at the end of the day, New Yorkers are resilient. We are a tough bunch. We will come out of this stronger as long as we continue to protect no. each other with the social distancing and the masks. And it's not an easy equation, but we're going to get there. Lieutenant Governor, thank you so much. Kathy Oko, this is a joy for this with Lieutenant Governor uh, every week. Joining us right now from J.P. Morgan is John Norman. He has been a wonderful supporter of all that we do at Surveillance because of a wonderful synthesis in his research note across equities, bonds, currencies, commodities. John, just exceptional historic import uh, coming up in three days. What do you hear from Bruce Kasman and your economists that you fold into market choice? To me, the most important takeaway from the work of our economists is that this is going to be an extremely abnormal recovery, meaning it's going to take 
years to recoup the lost output and the lost jobs. And that usually equates to uh, a multi-year process of recouping the lost profits. That, that's got to be a constraint on how much markets can retrace even if they go up. So that, that shape of the recovery to me is a, is a lot of what anchors the, the views on the asset markets going forward. The views on the asset markets don't seem that dire if you take a look at stock prices, particularly within the tech sector. Do you think that they're accurately pricing in, and I'm not just talking about big tech, just broadly, do you think that equities are pricing in what you're talking about, which is a prolonged period of time with these destroyed jobs not coming back anytime soon? No, I think they're priced over-optimistically, meaning they seem to be pricing an extremely smooth transition from the lockdown to the restart of the economies. So even though the, the levels that we're seeing right now in, in markets um, may, may, may be levels that, that um, uh, uh, should be seen in six months' time, it's, it's a bit premature to be seeing these now. It, it essentially assumes that the restart is, is, is going to be fall-free, and, and, and I think it's going to be a little more hazard-prone than that. So let's talk about it, John, how you allocate capital with all of that in mind. So for me, you want to be allocating to markets that are still very cheap and have a very direct central bank backstop. And and to me, this is why the credit markets are better risk reward than the equity markets over the over this transition period into restarting economies. Even though I think equity markets will be you know still higher by by year end, it's just sort of recognizing that as we go through this very awkward uh, restarting process, um, there are going to be some uncertainties around the, uh, the corporate profits outlook and. Market where at least someone else is buying, regardless of what the news flow is, and, and that someone, of course, is the Fed in terms of what it's doing in, in high grade and, and high yield markets. So I feel like that's the best risk reward for now. Even though I still think stocks are going to keep up performing bonds, let's say over the over the next few quarters. This is something your colleague Bob Michael talked about as well, co-investing with the Federal Reserve. And I just wonder, John, from your perspective, whether that takes you to the United States over Europe, the United States over the rest of the world, just geographically speaking, the regional bias. It, it definitely does because there's, there's two dimensions to this. One is that the, the Fed is just a much greater participant in in so many uh, sectors of, of U.S. financial markets compared to the ECB. The ECB actually has more latitude than the Fed. The ECB could buy stocks today if it wanted to, but it, it doesn't, and it has latitude to buy high yield, but it doesn't. So the Fed is the one that's the the um, the, the broadest investor uh, in play. But but there's another dimension to it as well, which is. When you think about what sectors are the in-game winners in a in a post-COVID environment, it's it's tech, communications, and it's and it's healthcare, and these are ones that probably comprise you know a good 45, 50 percent of the U.S. equity market. So if you just kind of recognize that there's a a structural set of winners here, that those winners are much more evident uh, and dominant in the U.S. equity market than other equity markets, it, it, it's a it's a hands-down view that the U.S. stock market is going to continue outperforming. John, implicit in your comments is this feeling like there will be no international consequence to the U.S.'s printing of trillions of dollars of debt with the Federal Reserve's balance sheet poised to exceed $10 trillion by the end of the year. A lot of times in the past, this would have been expressed in a weaker dollar versus other currencies, but weaker versus what, especially given some of the existential angst right now over in the euro region. Is that true, that basically there is no consequence to the U.S. monetizing its debt and increasing its deficit dramatically? There will be a, a consequence to this. It's more a question of time horizon, and as you suggest, um, against what asset specifically. So, um, over the long term, there's a concern that this could be inflationary. That that is 
not a concern right now or for this year or next year because you're going to have 15, potentially 20% unemployment in the in the U.S. Um, but there is a consequence in terms of real interest rates. They're they're extremely low in the U.S. and that makes it difficult for the U.S. to attract financing. And I think that's one of the reasons uh, why you do see the dollar slipping lower versus the yen, and it slips lower versus the gold price, even though stock and credit markets are very healthy right now. So there's there's some I think residual anxiety around the, the dollar as a right. currency, which is feeding through into some things like the yen and gold, even though it's it's certainly not a you know a fire sale. Where it gets more interesting is if you're in a in a much better state of the world in six months' time. What's the demand for uh, U.S. assets when um, QE is bearing down on on real interest rates and and other parts of the world are picking up? That's when I think you could see something much bigger in terms of payback against the dollar versus a broader range of currencies. But that's something for you know six months from now. John, we're six minutes away from the beginning of three days of history in America within this economic contraction. And the sum of it distilled on long-term planning for our global Wall Street is what's the new actuarial assumption. Do you change your actuarial assumption of long-term investable assets? Do you have to lower it given disinflation? Or dare say, do you have to actually raise it because you see an inflationary impulse out there somewhere? No, I think what you have to do is is rather than be macro about it, you actually have to be more micro. You have to sort of recognize that some sectors are either not going to exist or they're not going to exist with nearly the same profitability as, as they used to. And so you you really have to reset your assumptions around profits, growth, and, and margins on a, a sector-by-sector basis. And I think that's the kind of you know arithmetic that people just haven't really gotten around to, to doing yet. They're kind of grappling with the first-order issue, which is the recession, but there's a whole lot more thinking that yeah. around what, what's viable as a, as a sector, and you kind of aggregate those into what it might be for right. profit the market as a whole. One final question, uh, John Norman. We saw Apple with a glorious bond effort. I think it was two days ago. Everybody can issue bonds right now, can't they? What does that signal to our listeners? Well, I don't think everyone can issue bonds. I think if you're a high-quality borrower, you can. And that's a very important distinction. You know, when you think about um, what what booming issuance is telling us, it's telling us clearly there's a demand for fixed-income paper, clearly there's a lot of faith that certain um, higher-rated borrowers are, are still going to be around after after COVID, but it's it's the lower quality part that one really has to worry about, and obviously the lower quality segments are the ones that have really grown over the past several years of, of easy money. So I, I I wouldn't misread that booming issuance as a as a like a, a health check uh, yeah, or affirmation fair, of the economy fair. across the board. Yeah. Hey, John, great to catch up with you. Appreciate your time this morning. So my best to the team. John Norman there, JP Morgan Head of Cross Asset Fundamental Strategy. Pleased to say that Howard Davis, Sir Howard Davis joins us now, the RBS chairman. Howard, fantastic to have you with us on the program. Can we just spend a moment reflecting on these devastating jobs figures that are coming through here in America and undoubtedly likely to be the same in the United Kingdom as well, albeit on a different scale. Howard, how are you thinking about the recovery and how quickly this labour market heals? Well, the first thing I'd have to think about is the the personal tragedies that must lie behind these numbers, because there must be a lot of uh, very worried people out there. Um, I think that we desperately need now some sense of direction on the recovery. In some European countries, notably in Germany, 
also to some extent now in France, we are seeing a bit of direction and a bit of loosening up, which gives people some optimism and might mean that these job losses were temporary. But at the moment here, I'm afraid we don't have that. All we've been told is that we may be told something on Sunday about the way in which the recovery will emerge. And I think that's increasingly important because the assumption behind a lot of government schemes and a lot of bank lending has been that we face a V-shaped recovery, that people will come very quickly up the other side of this canyon. But the longer it goes on, the much less certain that recovery is. Howard, when you look at Royal Bank of Scotland's workforce and you look at uh, the fact that so many people are working remotely and, and getting it done, are you expecting a smaller workforce and one that is less centralized in a big city going forward for your bank? We are very busy at the moment. We've managed to keep 95% of our branches open and our IT people, particularly those people dealing with small businesses or dealing with people getting mortgage interest holidays, are very busy. So we have said we're not laying people off uh, at this point. We're not asking for support from the government. Now, in the longer run, if you look and say, what are we learning in this crisis about the way in which we can operate? You know, you have to have, you will have to ask yourself some questions about location of people uh, and numbers of people, etc. But for the moment, you know, the the job unemployment numbers are not coming from us because we are pre- we're pretty frantic actually. Your charm, Howard Davies, is as a young lad at Oxford, you had the courage to study modern history and not something fancy like medieval history or the classics and all the rest of it. Tell us about our modern history forward, about government in our society, and particularly your take on the United States of America. Are we actually going to be more government-centric? Are we going to push back against the ethos of Ronald Reagan? I think you probably are. Um, I'm less expert, obviously, on the United States than I am on the UK. But I would have thought that the the knee-jerk rhetoric that says, uh, you know, we need uh, as little government as we can, the jokes about saying, you know, I'm from the government, I'm here to help you. That doesn't sound <laughs> like a joke now. But that's yeah. a, that sounds uh, as if that's actually serious. Um, and I think that will create a sense among the population, not those people who had their minds up uh, several centuries ago, they won't change, but there'll be a lot of people in the middle who say, well, do you know what, this government, you know, do we want to ridicule all these pointy heads within the beltway, or are they sometimes useful when the economy really falls into trouble? So I do think there will be a change in, in rhetoric, but of course it will depend on how effectively the government is seen to have responded, and that looks rather different from place to place, I think. There will be a change in business and how we do business, and that's for sure, Howard. I love your insight on how the United Kingdom will change in the years to come, particularly with banking. Now, for many people listening to this program in the United States, retail banking in the UK has changed radically in the last couple of decades. You walk into a bank branch now and you'll see very few people, a lot of machines, very few people. And the machines are now doing the day-to-day transactions that I think a lot of people are still depending on people for in America. Howard, does that just accelerate that trend in the UK and beyond? Is there something new, a new world of banking that we need to consider just in terms of your day-to-day operations and how you use people? Yes, that's uh, the short answer to that question is yes. The uh, crisis has meant that a lot of people have switched to digital banking who did not wish to do so before. Now, the millennials have already done that. That's not news to them. But we had quite a lot of older customers who found this rather frightening and intimidating. 
and they are now switching um, because they've had to, and they are switching uh, quite quickly. So we are going to see an acceleration of the trend towards remote banking, and in due course, that will undoubtedly alter things quite a bit. But I guess also the interesting thing about the competitive dynamic is that we have got quite a lot of new ventures, new fintech companies, new digital-only banks, etc. Some of them are well-funded and will survive this crisis and come out stronger, and some will fall by the wayside. So I think we will see an altered competitive environment in two ways. One, it will be more digital, but two, some of the marginal players, I suspect, will find it difficult to survive. Howard, fantastic to get your thoughts this morning. Really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. So Howard Davis there, RBS chairman, joining us on the latest with the job situation and the future of banking as well in the UK and beyond. It's National Nurses Week, and that is a big deal uh, across this nation this year. We talked to Lauren Sauer of the Johns Hopkins University. Everyone is working incredibly hard to um, keep up with the patient load, keep up with the demands of using the PPE, keep up with the demands of uh, working overtime to make sure units get turned into COVID units um, and uh, patients are safely cared for. Um, we're, We're incredibly grateful for the work of our nurses. It's really just been unbelievable. Lauren Sauer, what I notice about emergency medicine is you try to learn every step of the way. What do you know now about the therapeutics of this virus versus where you were six weeks ago? Well, we just conducted the first phase of um, the ACT trial, um, which is the NIH adaptive trial, and the first arm was remdesivir. So we are starting to see some positive data, which is really exciting. Um, we're, we're learning a lot about some of the other drugs that have been tried, hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine. Um, we're learning a lot about proning of patients. Uh, so there's a lot of studies underway um, all throughout the hospital. Lauren Sauer, talk to me a little bit about how first responders are, are feeling about, you know, the, the president and the administration saying that they want to reopen uh, the economy, even if it means more, you know, rise in deaths and infections. How many percentage of the population we think have had COVID? Uh, you know, do we need much more testing to try and understand where the virus is and in what phase we are exactly? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think the, the first word that comes to mind is scared. Um, when you're in the hospital every day and you're seeing these patients come in quite sick and knowing that there's so many of the, pop, so many of the population who are not infected um, yet and who may be as, state, as states and locations start to reopen, uh, we get really nervous. Um, we're finally starting to see a bit of an easing in the number of cases. Uh, in Maryland, and we um, we approach that easing with cautious optimism because, uh, you know, as you know, as you start to reopen, you'll see a spike in cases, and in, and in several of the states that are already starting to ease restrictions, their cases are still on rapid increase. So, um, you know, in states like Florida, Nebraska, other places where they're starting to ease the restrictions, they're they're their case counts are actually on the rise. So I think we are all in the healthcare setting nervous that uh, these restrictions will be eased too quickly and we'll see a massive spike in, in the number of cases. Do we have more drugs now? And how close are we to a vaccine to try and fight this COVID-19? I think we're still a ways away from a vaccine. I mean, everyone is, at, is working overtime on 
on the development of a vaccine. Um, and in fact, there was a, a summit uh, late last, or sorry, earlier last week, specifically on focused on uh, racing to get a vaccine up and up and running. It's a, a true uh, tour de force of global efforts to develop a, a coronavirus vaccine. On the on the therapeutic side. We have remdesivir. We saw the positive data come out from the first phase of that clinical trial and several other clinical trials around remdesivir. Um, so it's it is definitely looking promising. The data are looking promising, but you know that is an IV infusion drug, so people have to be given it in the hospital. So I think there's a lot of people working on drugs that can be given orally, drugs that can be given administered at yeah. home or in the outpatient setting. Um, so we have a long ways to go. Lauren Sauer, expert in emergency room medicine at the Johns Hopkins University and, of course, part of the Bloomberg School of Public Health. And we thank Michael Bloomberg for his uh, support of this uh, company, the terminal company, Bloomberg LP, and also this radio television station in his philanthropy to his Johns Hopkins uh, University. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.